Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 16. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am extremely excited to introduce my special guest today, Jonathan A. Stein. Jonathan, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? You bet. Okay, it's wonderful having you here. Thank you. Jonathan A. Stein is the executive editor and associate publisher of Haggerty Classic Cars, although he may best be known for his 12-year stint at Automobile Quarterly. A full-time automobile historian and editor for over 26 years, Jonathan has been involved with the old car hobby for 40 years. He's the author of three books, and he has edited or published another dozen, and has written hundreds of articles for major magazines in the United States and England. He has consulted for museums, restoration shops, auction houses, and for Smithsonian Journeys, for which he is a frequent study leader for European tours to automotive points of interest. A longtime denizen of the Concours circuit, he is a judge at Pebble Beach, Amelia Island, Concours of America, and many other major automotive events. On his own time, Jonathan has been spotted driving his MGA Coupe, which he's owned for over 37 years. So Jonathan, I've told our listeners a little about you, so take some time, share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and your passion for automobiles. Well, thank you, Mark. Pretty much everyone listening, I can't remember a time that I wasn't interested in cars. And with cars, you're pretty much you are what you eat. So, you know, my dad had a TR3 uh, when I was growing up, and that went for a Volvo 1800, a real early one. And being from New Jersey, there were foreign cars absolutely everywhere. So that really and truly shaped my interest. Take us through your life there, and how did you get involved? You've been working in the, as a journalist for many, many years, but walk us through that path from perhaps childhood up through where you're sitting today. I got my first car uh, when I was uh, uh, 17. I lived in a 17 state, so you, you couldn't get your license until you were 17. And unlike a lot of my contemporaries, I took the driver's test on a manual transmission. Uh, my mom's Capri V6, which was a great car. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, my brother was really pissed because it took him three tries, and I did it on my first shot. <laughs> he didn't like that much at all. And my parents turned me loose that day in the Capri to go to my uh, job. It was during winter break, and uh, a snowstorm came in. And they came and got me, but let me drive home with one of them in a snowstorm. Wow. Uh, in a rear-wheel drive car, and, uh, well, it was baptism by fire. Sure. As you were uh, going through school and then getting into the beginning of your careers, how did you move into the automotive industry? Well, I was really interested in cars. I had a career path, which I soon in college decided wasn't for me. I was thinking labor relations. And about halfway through college, I figured I don't really know what I want, but let's master this writing stuff. And I really threw myself at it. And by senior year of college, I knew that I really wanted to try to work in 
uh, automotive publishing or in the industry and the PR side. And uh, I started hitting every magazine and every uh, uh, importer because so many of the importers were in the in New Jersey, right around New York. It didn't work right away, but I started freelancing, got a few things published, was working. Uh, actually writing insurance materials for auto insurance, the AARP auto insurance program, when one day uh, I got a call out of the blue from Automobile Quarterly. I had sent a resume somewhere else, and someone knew someone, and they passed my resume along. And uh, moving away, taking a $10,000 hit on our house, and taking a massive pay cut for both of us was the best thing I ever did. Well, there you go. That's And what was it like working there? There was a learning curve because I really thought I knew a lot about cars. I didn't know much at all. I didn't even know what I didn't know until I started to realize that there was tons I didn't know. That's when my education started. The moment you realize you don't know squat is when you're ready to learn something. That great publication, I've been getting it for years, is uh, such a, it's almost like receiving, well, it is receiving a gift in the mail when it shows up, that, that beautiful book. What are some of the the things that happened to you while you were there that really spurred on your journalism and your career? Well, what I did for starters is every day at lunch, I'd pull a different issue off the shelf, and I'd read as much of it as uh, as I could. I'm a pretty fast reader, and I figured the best way to learn what I needed to do was to learn where they'd been, and that really helped. I spent a lot of time in the archives, which, which helped, and... What really broadened my knowledge was it was a generalist publication. They did all kinds of different genres. I knew nothing about dirt track racing. And there was a uh, an author who uh, threw something over a transom. Someone said, oh, we don't know anything about this. We don't do this stuff. Take a look at it. And I read it, and the guy was a riveting storyteller. And I almost choked on the dust, and I wanted to do it. You know, learning about all sorts of things and meeting you know, in my career, I've met some amazing people and interviewed some amazing people. Oh, in the, around 1989 or 90, I had a call from uh, Bill Curtis. Oh, okay. He had materials he thought we might want. He just wanted to give to us. You know, I've interviewed uh, John Thornley, who was the managing editor of M- uh, managing director of uh, MG. I have a letter from him on my wall. You know, it, it's wonderful. Some of the folks I've gotten to to interview and, and to know and to edit. You know, I got to edit Beverly Ray Kimes and Griff Borgeson, two of the greatest auto writers of our time. I've gotten to uh, work with Carl Ludvigson and Doug Nye, the Giants. Well, sounds like a wonderful time you had there. For 12 years, and about nine of them, I was actually uh, uh, running it, which was pretty interesting because I became a, uh, a father and took over running it about within a three-week period, and it got pretty interesting. I'll bet it did. Now, the learning that you did there, is that what helped you move into writing for other publications and then being involved in Concours events? Absolutely. I had done some local judging before I was there, quite a bit of local judging, but not on the national level. And through Automobile Quarterly, I got to meet a lot of the players, Jules Human and, and later Sandra Kasky and Bill Warner. So... My card file, oh, well, it's, it's an Excel sheet, is, I don't know, I have 2,000 people in it, and only about maybe 5% of them are dead. It's just if I like someone, I don't like to cross them out when they die. Oh, goodness. Well, 
for uh, for future interviewees, now I know who I can call to get some nice references. I'll be calling you, Jonathan. You know, there are a lot of things that I don't know, Mark, but I almost invariably know someone who will know it. Great reference. The old, uh, for the young listeners, the old Rolodex, which is now, of course, the contact file in our computers. But uh, yeah, those contacts are important. That's one of the things I'm striving for here at Cars Yeah, is to interview interesting people and keep these recorded histories up there so people can listen to them forever, really. That's wonderful. Moving forward, you ended up at Haggerty, Collector Car Insurance Company, which I've been a customer of theirs for, gosh, probably 15 years. What brought you to Haggerty? Well, uh, after Automobile Quarterly was sold and uh, moved down to uh, southern Indiana, I went to work for Bentley Publishers and Pretty much everyone who's listening will know about their manuals, Bentley manuals. Yes, of course. And I was on their enthusiast book side, acquiring manuscripts. And one of the things I really like to do is fix sick manuscripts. Uh, it's a lot of work, but I really, I really enjoy it and seem to be okay at it. And I've been there for four years, and things had suddenly taken a turn for the worse. And I could, uh, I knew that I had to get out of there, or would be gotten out of there. And I received a call, I think it might have been from my colleague Ken Gross, saying, would I be interested in talking to someone at Haggerty? They uh, had approached him, and he didn't want a staff position. Would I be interested? And I said, sure, the timing's fantastic. So I'd already done a project or two with the folks at Haggerty. It uh, been very good to us when I was at Automobile Quarterly, and I knew a few people there, including McKeel. And I had an interview at, when I was out at Pebble Beach, and that was hysterical. Uh, I was consulting for Bonhams, and I had uh, all my clothing in my rental car to change to go meet for the interview, and someone had to move the cars to make room for parking. And I realized he'd never returned the keys, and he dropped them. Oh, no. And we're searching everywhere, and Hertz gives you all the keys. So there's no, I could get a locksmith out there for a couple hundred bucks to get in the trunk and get me my clothing, and then I have to find another way, and then I have to flatbed the, uh, uh, the car, and it cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Uh, eventually, someone found them about the time that the then president of Haggerty called and asked to push back our interview by an hour, for which I was very grateful, and I ultimately made it there out of breath and on time. But it was, it was really quite amazing. Those are wonderful stories, and you always wonder if the person you're sitting in front of interviewing if he only knew what you went through to try to be there and look presentable. Oh, absolutely. I don't think I ever told him about that little episode. Well, now he knows. Yes. (laughs) Jonathan, what we're going to do here before we drive further into the journey in your life is start with a success quote, something that has been instrumental in forming your success or your life. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah. So, Jonathan, take the wheel. Well, there was something that my seventh grade social studies teacher, I think it was, used to say, and her name was Miss Kramer, and I remember her as about seven feet tall and about 75 pounds, and she was scary. And she used to say, a rule is not a rule unless there's an exception. Just like that, that greedy, high-pitched voice. And I like that because it's true. You know, and so when you haven't done something before, that's about the best reason to do something I've ever heard of. Since that has stuck with you from seventh grade, how have you incorporated that into your life, into your business, and in your passion for cars? 
I don't know. Uh, I, I can't know what it was. In the last week, we were doing magazine planning, and someone suggested something, and the answer was, well, we've never done it, so that sounds like a really good reason to do it. Uh, I'm sure that that response from me came out of hearing that so many years ago. And it's funny, my older brother also had Miss Kramer, and I'll have to find out all these years later whether that had any impact on him. Well, I love your response to that. I've worked around far too many people that said, well, we've never done it that way, so why should we do it now? And I've always believed in just the opposite, unless you push yourself. So thank you, Miss Kramer, for, for that inspiration all the way back to seventh grade. Isn't it funny how some adults in our lives and teachers have really made a positive impact on us and Sometimes you want to go back and let them know how good they were to us, even though they were kind of scary. She was scary. She'd yell at you and give you marks. If you made a mistake and wanted to cross it out, you had to put a single line through it. If you scribbled through it, she got really upset. The problem is if you knew you said something really stupid, you'd scribble through it just so she wouldn't see it and you'd take the hit. (laughs) That's wonderful. Will you share a story with us that really instigated your passion for cars? Tell us that pivotal moment in your life when you realized, I'm a car guy. Well, I was with my father. We were, go- we were near our home, and we were going over an overpass, and I could look down on the highway. And I saw a little black open car, and I said, is that an MGA? And Dad said, yes. And I don't know how I knew that. You've had an MGA for a long, long time. So how old were you when you saw that black well, car? Oh, I couldn't have been 10. The car, the cars that I have are coupes. I've had a bunch of them. I just sold a twin cam coupe in December that I had for about 12 years. You know, we all have something that's called... The writer Mario Chuzo, who wrote The Godfather, Yes. Uh, when, he, when he exiled Michael Corleone to Sicily... He saw, I think, a Pollyanna, and uh, he was struck by what the Sicilians called a lightning bolt moment. My lightning bolt moment was when I saw a picture of an MGA coupe, and there was something about it. I didn't even know whether they were imported. I had to have one. And I think we all have a car. We have a lightning bolt moment, the first car that we absolutely have to have. Yep, I think you're right with that. For me, it was probably a Jaguar XKE when I was maybe four or five years old, and that was the first Matchbox by Lesney that my father ever bought me at the hardware store he used to take me to on the weekends, and I still have it, a little red Jaguar XKE. So, yep. What's a coupe? A coupe, yep. Mm-hmm. That I had that one, too. In fact, I think we got them when we were... Uh Maybe when we went to the uh, New York World's Fair where we saw the uh, the Corvettes. Wonderful. I remember they were a quarter, so that was kind of a big deal for Dad to spend a quarter and let me have one of those. But uh, That was I, a week's allowance, wasn't it? <laughs> I never got an allowance, so I wouldn't know. Oh, we got a quarter a week. Well, there you go. You were, you were fortunate. Hey, Jonathan, what I want to do now is take a look at your journey and the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood and maybe get our hands a little dirty. I want you to share with us a a huge challenge or even a big failure that you faced in your career, maybe your life, and something that you really had to push hard to get through. But more importantly, tell us how you overcame that situation and what it meant to you. When I was at Automobile Quarterly, we had a story fall through. I don't remember what the one that fell through was. 
And we were at deadline. We were in real trouble. And I hadn't been there very long. And there was a manuscript in that was really, really rough, bad. And I remember at probably five or six at night, in the early days of word processing, and I wasn't very good at it, I took apart this entire story. And a subject I didn't know that much about, it was an early American car. And I was working at it till about six or seven in the morning, all night long, where I literally took it apart, put it back together, reordered it, turned it into a story, did more research. And in the middle of the night, it was like, oh my gosh, how do I put this back together? Not only did it come out very well, the writer was smart enough that he already had something in the works because I wasn't going to use him again, and he followed the organizational template, and after that we had a journeyman writer we could count on. I didn't know how I was going to achieve that because we were going to hold up press because we had no story. Sure. Well, what was the lesson that you learned from that? Give it a shot and hope there are no spare parts left over. (laughs) I like the analogy to the automotive rebuild. It's like trying to prepare your car for a big race the next day or you have a Concorde coming up and you have all these parts on the floor and you're just looking at them going, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? I don't have enough time. But somehow you pull a rabbit out of your hat. So, And when you got a press deadline, that's a big rabbit. Wonderful story. Thank you. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share that time when you had an aha moment in your career That time when you realized that perhaps working in the automotive field was really going to work, or maybe it was a specific project, and tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. Oh, that's a really tough question. (laughs) Um, You know, the minute I sat down at Automobile Quarterly, I knew that was it. You know, I'd been writing for insurance companies, and there was car-related things, but it was boring. And, the, you know, here I have a big library to play in. You know, I have an excuse to talk to all these people. I never wanted that to end. So I just think it was, from the minute I got there, it was, uh, uh, it was that aha moment. You had found Nirvana. Yeah, it's exactly what I wanted to do. And we never questioned that leaving Connecticut and, you know, living apart for a year while we sold the house, it was worth it. And Reading turned out to be a decent area to live in and raise a family. Sure. So, no, it was it was fantastic. Well, it's really fun when you can combine your career with your passion, and that's what this show's all about is hearing stories so that there's folks out there that they could be successful in their career, but they're driving to work or they're working out and they're listening to this to realize, you know what, I can find something. It might take or it might require me stepping back a little bit, maybe a little less pay, some sacrifice, but I can do what I'm passionate about. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. So thanks for sharing that. Jonathan, let's have a little fun. I'd like you to talk a little bit about your first truly special car. Sometimes it is your first car, but it doesn't have to be, but something you considered my real first car. Could you share with us what made that car special What kind of fun you had with that? Maybe it was modifications, restoration, adventures, or special memories? Well, the first car I got was the first interesting car I got. It was a restoration project, 59 MGA Coupe. And believe it or not, I bought it from a guy named Rocky Marciano, not the boxer. Okay. And the first dose of fun we had 
was hooking it up to a tow bar in Westchester, New York, and we're going to tow it home behind, flat tow it behind the uh, Capri, which had a hitch. We get one block, and the front wheel pops off and goes bouncing across the intersection. The brake drum hits the dirt, hits the pavement. It turns out uh, Rocky had been doing some uh, brake work before he went off to grad school in Kansas, and he put the hubcap on with the nuts loose in it. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, we had to jack it up and get the wheel back on, and fortunately, the, uh, uh, when it rolled off down the street, that wheel still had the hubcap and the lug nuts in it. Oh, gosh. At least you didn't lose the lug nuts. No, no. We, we put it back on and uh, towed it and uh, got it home. And I had gone to a, a private high school, well, a private K-12 school in New Jersey, and I managed to convince the guidance counselor to give me credit for a senior project restoring the car, but he said, you haven't done much poetry, so you can restore the car if you do a poetry independent study. So I had to read poetry and work on my car. I had, it, I had to have it running at graduation, and I did. It wasn't necessarily a professional job, but it was a running, driving MGA coupe, and we caught the leaky brake hose as I tried to take it through inspection. You had to go through a pretty tough inspection in New Jersey in those days. And uh, that's how we found out that I needed a brake hose. <laughs> well, wonderful. On the way, to t- uh, way back from getting the brake hose, I dropped one side of the, uh, the exhaust on my mom's Capri, which was a really complex uh, dual exhaust system. And I remember having to race back to the friend's house to get wire to wire it up so I could drive home and get the brake hose in so I could make it to graduation that night. <laughs> what a fun story. And did you keep that car for very much longer after that time? No, I was really dissatisfied with it, and I was already looking for a twin cam. So I part traded it for a uh, early pole handle red MGB that was a little rusty, but we called Milo the Wonder Car. Well, that that'll be for another story another time. Yeah. I like that Milo the Wonder Car. Is there a car, Jonathan, in your past that you have some seller's remorse over that you really wish you had back? No, really. Uh, every car that I've gotten rid of, I've gotten rid of for the right reason at the right time. Good for you. Twin cam. The twin cam was a love-hate car, and it was breathtakingly beautiful, black with green interior and a coupe, uh, just lovely, lovely looking, and uh, wonderful to feel that engine, but I just wanted it gone. And I'm, the money's just sitting there. I'm not buying another car. I have no, I, I'm just so glad it's gone. <laughs> There you go. Is there a current project that you're working on right now that really has you excited, really has you fired up? You know, I'm doing some some small stories, and I'm do, preparing for uh, doing some presentations for a Smithsonian uh, trip uh, that I'll be leading to uh, Northern Europe. You know, there's nothing that's... I do have something I'll be starting pretty soon. That's... Um, I mentioned the lightning bolt moment. I'm going to be doing a story about... Uh, interviewing people about their lightning bolt moments. Oh, great. Uh, that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's part of a series I do called The Psychology of Collecting. I started that with the car hoarders, and I even interviewed uh, the leading obsessive-compulsive uh, uh, psychiatrist in the country. Really? And uh, two other psychologists and a psychopharmacologist, basically a, pharma, a Ph.D. pharmacist who works with the uh, mentally ill. Interesting. And, and then I did a few uh, case studies 
uh, obviously you can't interview people live because no one's going to want to be publicly humiliated as being a hoarder. <laughs> well, you know, this is not reality TV. Well, and how will that uh, project be presented? Will it be uh, writing or audio? Or? Well, it'll be a uh, it'll be a story in Haggerty Classic Cars magazine. Oh, great! Uh, uh, in early 2015, I think. I'll look forward to that. Uh, I might be that guy's one of that guy's patients. Who knows? <laughs> I won't give up uh, any secrets. <laughs> I may call you to interview for that story. In fact, I think I will. Okay, we'll talk. Um, we'll just put a black bar across my face so nobody recognizes me. Let's talk a little bit about your favorite way to spend time with cars. Is it uh, wrenching with them, driving them, restoring them, just simply cleaning them and polishing them? Do you have a favorite way to spend in the garage? Favorite favorite way to spend time in the garage? I used to. I used to love just cleaning them. There's, there's no better way to get to know a car than to wash it and detail it and wax it. I'm so busy now that it's not as relaxing as it was. I did used to love that, and uh, I still love driving them. I, uh, uh, about a week ago, I went somewhere in the, uh, the Grey Coupe, and it was great. I went to a, my uh, bicycle club picnic, and literally everybody in the place stopped as I pulled in, Want to know who, what car is that, who's that driving it, and that was kind of fun. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'll tell you something funny. Lots of times when I way back looking for cars to buy, I would ask the dealer if I could take it home and wash it because if I didn't enjoy rubbing my hands over the car and washing it, I didn't want to buy it. I got some pretty weird reactions from salespeople when I asked for that, but it's true. It's uh, Well, they, you know they weren't car people. You know that they were just uh, salespeople. Exactly. I understand that. That's a great idea. Okay, Jonathan, we're coming up on what I call the last lap. And this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? We're all ready as I'll ever be. Okay, here we go. What is the best automotive advice that you've ever received? Buy the best car you can possibly afford, and if you can't afford the best car, wait. (laughs) Great advice. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? I like to drill through China. My stories are very often narrow topics where I go straight down, and I love that, and it's a trifle anal retentive doing it that way, but I like to know that when I've done a story, there's no need for anyone else to do it again. Wonderful. Do you have a resource that you could share with our listeners, perhaps a website or two that you like to go to, a supplier, restoration shop, maybe even a person? I had a pretty bad experience with my uh, twin cam coupe restoration and uh, to try to save the restoration I sent it to a shop in uh, Michigan you know we all want our cars close to home but sometimes you just need to send it away you know forget the convenience go to the best person and that best person turned out to be eclectic motor works a guy named uh, Carl Heidemann and uh, you know I don't mind expensive when you get what you pay for wonderful And is there a book that you've read recently that you can share with our listeners that you really enjoyed? The books that I love, though, are the chassis-by-chassis histories. Um, Like uh, right here on my shelf, I have uh, Andrew White's uh, Sports Racing uh, and Works Competition Cars, two Jaguar books, 253 and From 53, 
and then Simon Moore's two, three, and two, nine books, uh, um, alpha books. I love chassis history books. You know, these really, really detailed books where you stumble across a chassis, you can find it. There, there are books like that on GT40 uh, by Ronnie Spain. You know, I just love those books. Wonderful. We'll make sure that we post these links up on carsyad.com. You can go there and just type Jonathan Stein into the search bar. You'll find his show notes page and the links to all these references that Jonathan spoke about today at carsyad.com. Okay, Jonathan, we're at the checkered flag. And this last question can sometimes be a challenge. Some people, it's not a challenge at all, but I like to call it a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage something that you couldn't sell to buy other cars with, and money is no object. What would it be, and more importantly, why? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that question for about a week, and I'm stuck between two cars, would you believe? Okay, well, you can tell us both cars, but you're going to have to pick one and tell us why you chose that one over the other. Okay, well, I'll just go straight for that. Talbot Lago, in about 55, 56, they made an America Coupe using the, um, the V8 uh, BMW engine. And they look like the Grand Sport, but they're miniaturized. And these are beautiful. They're unusual. I saw my first one when I was about 16, and I have wanted one ever since. It's just gorgeous to look at. It's got that great engine, good transmission. It's really rare. So I think... And it's a lot more drivable than the pre-war Aston Martin I've wanted for years. Wonderful. Sounds like a beautiful ride. Jonathan, you've taken us on a, a great ride, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for being here today and being so gracious with your time. Could you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset and let them know what's the best way for them to learn more about you and get a hold of you, and then we'll say goodbye. Well, I guess, again, the... Uh when playing with cars, don't cut corners because if you cut a corner with parts, with who you go to for work or the car you buy, you're going to end up paying twice later. Just save till you can do it right. And basically, if you want to know more about me or what I write, uh, you can go to Haggerty.com and look for the magazine back issues online. They're all digitized, and you can look at them and, uh, and read some of my articles. Uh, a lot of them are up there. Wonderful. Well, listeners, you can find the links to everything that Jonathan and I have spoken about today at carsyad.com slash Jonathan Stein, S-T-E-I-N. Simply enter Jonathan in the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Jonathan, thanks for being so generous with your time today and your expertise and talking with us. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. And remember, you owe me an interview now. All right. No problem, buddy. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.